everybody. Welcome back to my channel. Thanks so much for tuning in. My name is Dana Trubiana, and I cover infamous gangsters every week in a true crime-like format. My show, Mob Times, comes out every Tuesday morning at 10 a.m., sometimes. Well, it's Tuesday, it's 10 a.m., so here I am. If you're new here, welcome. If you've been here before, I hope you know how much I love you guys, and thank you so much for all your love and support. So before we start talking about this amazing woman that I'm going to be covering today, I wanted to go over a quick update on what's going on with me. So I know I talked to you guys on earlier episodes about how I was going to go through another round of IVF to get a female egg because there is a history of issues in my family with male babies. But since then, I have had seven masses form in my breasts and I've done a lot of thinking. And I just think the process of IVF is going to be a little too hard on my body and I really don't want to go through that again. Obviously, the cost sucks as well. That's not something I want to take on again. That was $12,000 the first time. It's going to be no less than $8,000 this next time around. So obviously the cost has a factor, but the main factor here is that my body, I just don't feel confident enough that my body won't break down and just die on me. My husband and I sat down and talked about it a lot, and we've decided that we're going to move forward with a male egg and have a son. This is something I haven't really talked to friends and family about, but since I know that none of my friends or family watches these videos, it's kind of nice to have like a little video diary here because I'm talking to people, but I'm not talking to anybody that I see in my normal everyday life. So I had stopped going to appointments for the IVF stuff because I had all this masses stuff coming up. So I started going to appointments again for that, which is pretty huge. And today I actually had an appointment where I did something equivalent to, I did a test, honestly, I'm gonna, not going to sit here and try to explain what it is. It's a whole bunch of medical jargon, but the point of it is they were looking to make sure that I didn't have any current tumors because I had to have surgery in the past to remove them, and I don't. And if I would have had any, I would have had to have another surgery to remove them. So yay, super happy about that. And I've been working from home, so I... I have been in the house for like a really long time. I'm talking like months. I barely leave the house. And the last few days I've been going out to doctor's appointments. Today I went and got a deed to my house for like some tax stuff because I get a discount on my taxes, on my home taxes, because I'm a veteran with 100% disability. So I had to go get the deed of my house and I have to get a death certificate for my mother and blah, 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 blah. But it's been nice going out and like venturing out in the world. So today was kind of fun just getting out of the house. Breathed a little new life into me. I forgot about my earrings. That's the whole reason I did my hair up today. Aren't they so cute? I love them. I love dangly things. I have my belly button pierced and I always have something dangly in there. And if I could have something dangly on my tongue ring, I definitely would because I am that loser. 
Okay, so let's get down to today's episode. We're going to be switching it up a bit this week because we're talking about someone who is not only not affiliated with the Mafia, but was an active enemy of the Mafia and was ultimately taken down by the boys that I normally cover. Today, we're going to be discussing Stephanie St. Clair, a beast of a woman, an avid fighter for the civil rights movement, and someone who is literally the exact opposite to who we're usually discussing on this channel, but just as powerful. was born on December 24th, 1897, so she's a Christmas Eve baby. I feel so bad for people whose birthday are that close to Christmas. Anybody with a birthday that is on or within, let's say, 10 days of Christmas, they just get screwed, and it is not fair. They say that they don't, but you know that your whole life growing up, your parents just took a few Christmas presents and put them aside and repurposed them as a birthday present. My dad's birthday is on January 2nd, and and by the time his birthday rolls around, I am already so tired of presents, it really just sucks. So to anybody that has that kind of birthday, I feel for you. I'm so sorry that you go through that. There are several versions of St. Clair's birth, but most accounts state that she was born in the French archipelago Guadalupe, which is the French Caribbean. Stephanie St. Clair also made a declaration of intention herself in 1924 to Moulet Grand that the French West Indies, present-day Guadalupe West Indies, was her actual place of birth, so I'm gonna go with her word. I believe her. She was born of African descent to a single mother. Her mother, Felicienne, worked really hard to send her daughter to school, and she really just did everything she could to set her up for success. She wanted her to have a standard education. We all know how difficult it is to raise a kid when you're a single mom, but she was living in pretty bad poverty, but she always made sure that St. Clair had the ability to go to school. By the time St. Clair turned 15 years old, her mother, Felicienne, was gravely ill, and that had a major effect on her education. Because her mother was the sole breadwinner of the house, she didn't have any brothers or sisters, she didn't have a dad, and she had no other adult figures in the house. She had to leave school so that she could make money to live. At the time, it was just St. Clair and her mom against the world. She's an only child, and it's literally just them two. So when her mom got sick and couldn't go to work anymore, it was her job to get up and make money so that they could have a place to live. Remember that this is not America. She's only 15 years old, but if her mom isn't there, nobody's gonna step in. There's no government assistant. There's no, if her mom dies, she's on her own. She doesn't have the foster system or anything really to help. At 15 years old, this poor girl is on her own right now. So she started to save up, and before long, the worst happened and her mother died. After her mom died, she worked in Martinique as a maid, but her employer's son assaulted her, and she got fired from her job for it. After that happened, she fled Martinique 
and she headed for France. And this makes me beyond furious because we all know it happens all the time. It's way easier to just fire the person that's saying that something happened than handle your shithead of a child. That is the most horrible thing. And I'm sure that they knew her story. I'm sure that they knew that this is a 15, 16 year old little girl whose mom just died and she is on her own in this world. But their little piece of crap son had to just go for it, so now she's out on her own again. After that happened, she fled Martinique and headed for France. When she couldn't find a job in France, she stayed for a while and she looked, but she couldn't find one. She left Marseille and she headed for Quebec. All of this is happening during a time of 1910 to 1911. When she arrived into Montreal, she immigrated from Montreal into the United States. So the United States, they have kind of like a threshold based on population. So like the United States will accept X amount of people from this location and X amount of people from this location. So you got to imagine that Guadalupe probably doesn't have that many slots allowed to it because it doesn't have that big of a population. Even France, I would imagine it's a little hard just because so far away to get into the United States. But once she's in Quebec, America accepted a lot of people from Canada because it's Canada. First of all, it's right there. America has always looked at Canada as like very similar to us. So it's a lot easier to get into America from Canada than from any other place that she had been. So she comes into America from Quebec because America at that time, the whole world just looks at America as the best place in the world you could be. She arrived in New York during a time of huge influx of immigrants coming into America from all over the world. You really don't have to prove where you're from or, I mean, you just say that you want to come in and you come in. I know personally, my grandfather, they had no idea where my grandfather was from when he came in. I have one document that said he was coming in from Great Britain and there's like a family secret that he actually came in from Italy because my grandmother was from Italy that he actually came in from Italy but he did some not so great things in Italy so he had to say that he was from somewhere else and completely changed his name so that is more than likely where he's from is Italy but America had no idea and you know he has his immigration paper saying Great Britain but he has his naturalization paper saying he's from from Canada. So we have no idea where he was actually from or what the real story is there. But that'll just go to show you America does not care. If you're coming in on a boat with people from Canada and you say you're from Canada, guess you're from Canada. When she got to the United States, she did get quarantined. If you watch The Godfather 2, in the beginning, the little boy that's coming over into America, he got quarantined because he had smallpox, I believe. We don't know why she got quarantined, but she did get quarantined. And she used the time that she was quarantined to teach herself English. That is the most impressive thing I've ever heard. I have a smartphone, and I have apps that make it a game to learn other languages, and I have been trying so hard to learn Italian, and I'm still, like, very very, very surface level. I couldn't have a full conversation in Italian. And I've been trying for a while now. So the fact that this little girl comes into America, gets a quarantine for, let's say, eight weeks, and just sits there with no technology, no nothing, and teaches herself a language, like, this girl is brilliant. 
St. Clair arrived in New York in the heat of the Great Migration, where over six million African Americans moved to the north of America in order to escape the persecution of Jim Crow in the South. The Jim Crow laws were state and local laws that enforced racial segregation in the southern United States. The Jim Crow South is, I swear I could do an entire episode on that, it's horrific. And that's not to say that no racism existed in the North, but it was a lot better in the North than it was in the South. But this is the time that she arrived in New York, so you gotta think there's gonna be a lot of people that are like her. She's African-American. She's gonna want to be in an area with other African-Americans. However, she's coming from Guadalupe, and there is very little, if not no, racism over there. So she's not really gonna have a full understanding of what the people that are running from the South have gone through. St. Clair ended up settling in an African-American neighborhood in Harlem. Now remember, Harlem is also the location that Little Italy is in. So it's not all of Harlem. There was a neighborhood within Harlem because Harlem is a huge borough. There could be a bunch of different places within Harlem. So you've got, you know, you got your Little Italy. I'm sure that there is areas for every type of immigrant. So she ends up settling in an African American neighborhood in Harlem. While she's in Harlem, she ends up falling in love with a small-time crook named Duke. And as much as she fell in love head over heels in love with Duke, Duke was kind of just using her as a tool to make money. Not long after they met, he ended up trying to persuade her to go into prostitution to make money. And remember, Stephanie St. Clair, she was raised by an independent, strong, powerful woman. And there is no way that she is about to become a prostitute. And she's like, hell, what what are you even talking about? Prostitute? Absolutely not. Like, no. It was never even a thought in her mind, but Duke is trying to talk her into it. And that kind of gives you an idea of how much Duke cares about her. And she's this young girl, doesn't have that much experience in the world, and he's trying to groom her into going into prostitution because it'll make him a lot of money. Very, very thankfully, not for her at the time, but thankfully in the scheme of things, Duke ended up getting shot and killed in a fight between gangs. So now she's still very young. She lost her mom. She's traveled to four different countries by now. She got with this dude who's trying to talk her into being a prostitute. And then her boyfriend dies. Like the will to survive on this woman is amazing. I can't imagine going through all that in such a short amount of time. So St. Clair starts her career by joining a gang called the 40 Thieves. There's a 40 Thieves gang in London, and it's a girl gang, but it's not the same gang. But you know what? I don't see it written anywhere, but I do have to wonder if her joining this gang has something to do with the fact that she had run-ins with them in London. I don't know. As I said, I never saw it written anywhere. I could be totally off base, but it's interesting to think that maybe she had run-ins with the 40 Thieves in London, so when she came to America, she got involved with the 40 Thieves here. There's been a lot of gangs named the 40 Thieves, honestly. So when you Google 40 Thieves, it'll tell you about one of the first criminal gangs ever formed, and they were famous for 
running theft and extortion rackets. They had been around since the 1820s, blah, blah, blah. I do have to think this is a different 40 Thieves, though, because that 40 Thieves was mainly Irish, and this 40 Thieves that Stephanie St. Clair is in and ends up running is all African-American. So I kind of think it's possible that she maybe created the 40 Thieves that she was in, but I'm not 100% sure about that. So the 40 Thieves gang, they have a reputation. After a while, they have a reputation for becoming so tough that even the Italian and Irish gangsters would not mess with them. Like, this gang, to be so scary as an African-American gang that even Irish and Italian gangsters won't go up against you, like, that is a big reputation. They must have been a force to be reckoned with. About four months down the line, St. Clair decides that she is going to start up a new business venture selling controlled drugs with the help of her new boyfriend, Ed. And this new venture is extremely, extremely lucrative. After only a few months of running this new business with her boyfriend, St. Clair had amassed $30,000. That amount would be a little over $700,000 today. So this is a very, very profitable business. Imagine making $700,000 in only a few months with a brand new business. Like this girl is a freaking hustler. So she goes to Ed and she tells him like, all right, listen, I have some money now and I never really wanted to be a drug dealer. I want to go into other things. I don't want to be dealing drugs. So I don't really want to be with you anymore. Ed turns around and he's like, "Uh, no, I don't think so. We're going to stay together. And she's like, no, I really don't want to be with you. And he's like, oh, okay, that's cool. And decides to start to strangle her. St. Clair pushed him off of her with such force that when she pushed him, he cracked his skull against the table and died. Now, I'm assuming it has something to do with this new business venture of hers that she has some seedy characters that she has dealings with, but she never gets charged with this crime. She must have cleaned up the body and nothing happened, or she reported it and she got away with it for self-defense. I don't really know. It doesn't really mention what happened after that. I just know that this particular incident did happen. So boyfriend number one tries to make her a prostitute and then gets killed in a gang fight. Boyfriend number two tries to kill her. So she's not doing too well with the men in her life. Those who knew her, they would kind of describe her as arrogant and sophisticated and very well versed in the ways of the big city life. There was rumors that went around that she was born in Marseille and they were actually started by her because she viewed France and like Marseille as a place to be looked up upon rather than the French Caribbean where she came from, which was kind of viewed as a place of poverty and just lower class of citizens. But really, she was born in the French Caribbean. Whenever people would ask what her nationality was, she would respond in French. So everybody just assumed that she was born in France. And if it wasn't enough that she knew how to speak and write French and English fluently, she was also fluent in Spanish. So she was fluent in three languages. Which, if you've ever tried to learn a second language as an adult, like, you know how freaking impressive that 
that is. Whenever she would get angry or she would like perceive some slight injustice towards her, she would just start yelling in different languages. So like she knew enough languages to be like cursing people out in Spanish and then French and then halfway through the sentence switch to English and it left a lot of people scratching their head because very little people knew more than one language and if they knew more than one language it was usually not French. So most people had no idea what she was talking about when she would flip out. She was well known in Harlem for obviously her illegal dealings but also for her eloquent sense of fashion. She was well known to dress like a socialite. Think like Paris Hilton. Like that kind of dressing and just, you know, she knows how to hold herself and conduct herself. To everybody in Harlem, she was known as Madame St. Clair, but to everybody outside of Harlem, she was known as Queenie. So after all the drama and everything was done with Ed, she had told Ed she wanted to leave because she wanted to go into different ventures, and she still was going to go through with that. She left the 40 Thieves because they were into, like, dealing drugs and robberies and all that kind of stuff, but she made sure to set them up so that they would have a way to survive. She left the gang and started to get into the numbers racket. So remember I said that she had amassed $30,000 through the dealing business that she had before. So out of that $30,000, she took $10,000 of her own money and she invested it into a clandestine lottery game in Harlem. It's also called the numbers racket. The fact that she had been so big in dealing drugs and then left that to start a numbers racket and she became really successful in the numbers racket pretty quickly, it caused a lot of attention to go towards St. Clair. She would be in the newspapers regularly. Everybody in Manhattan, in New York, knew about her, but the cops also knew who she was too. St. Clair was involved in policy banking, which was a combination of investing, gambling, and lottery play. Because a lot of banks around that time refused to accept any black customers, they were unable to invest legally. And if there's one thing that St. Clair did not stand for, she was not okay with anything not being accessible to black people that were accessible to white people. If something was non-accessible to her and the people in her neighborhood, she was going to do something about it and she was going to create the market so that people in her neighborhood and other African Americans would have a chance to gain wealth the same way that white Americans could. Although policy banking was not technically legal, it was one of the few options that were available to black Harlem residents that were looking to invest their money and build up some wealth instead of just staying in poverty. So yeah, it's not legal and it's a little bit criminal to do it, but at the same time, if there's no other way to go about it, sucks to suck, you know, whatever. Now this part of the business where it's investing, that's a predominantly black industry, obviously, because white people just go to the bank and they invest in the stock market. It's one of the only options available to the black residents in Harlem. So mostly this is going to be black people that are involved in this business. 
because it was mostly black people that were doing this, it gave the people that were doing it a sense of community and they cared about it a lot more. They didn't look at it like, oh, this is just, you know, banking like the people at the stock market did. They looked at it like it was a way of helping their community. So a lot of people got very, very invested in it and they cared about it a lot more because it was for people within their community that didn't have these options available to them without them. When St. Clair got into the business, she didn't invent this game. It had been available for a long time before her, but she was the first woman to get into it and become a very big member in it. The industry of policy banking in the Black community was not a new industry at all, but there was very little women in that game. It was a very male-dominated industry, so there was very few women involved at all, nevertheless running it. And that was one thing that set her pretty far apart from the other policy bankers in the community. She also aided the Black community in Harlem by employing a a lot of people that lived in the neighborhood as numbers runners. So in other words, one part of her business was doing a lottery where people would choose three numbers and numbers runners were just people that went around to the people that wanted to be in the lottery. So they would go around to people and say like, hey, do you want to play in this week's lottery? Those people would give their three numbers to the runners and they would collect the payment and bring it back and they made a lot of money doing this. She also gave a lot of money to any programs that promoted racial progress in her community. Even with the amount that she gave and spent, she lived a really lavish lifestyle in the 1920s because of her success in the numbers game. She earned more than $20,000 a year, which would be equal to a tiny bit under $300,000 in today's money a year. So she's living a very nice lifestyle. Her new status as a policy banker started to attract the unwanted attention of a lot of rival male racketeers because they're sitting there like, oh, hell no, I'm losing customers to a woman? Like, absolutely not. So she really can't stand up to men that are going to come after her. So she hired the services of Ellsworth Raymond Bumpy Johnson, a then unknown bodyguard. Remember, I had said that Bumpy Johnson was a member of the 40 Thieves, so she just pulled him from the 40 Thieves and made him her bodyguard. And that's the thing that bugs me. So Bumpy Johnson is somebody that most people have heard his name. He's a very famous criminal. They have a crazy amount of movies, TV shows, everything about him. But honestly, before this episode, I had no idea who Stephanie St. Clair was. And Stephanie St. Clair did what Bumpy Johnson did, only big and she pretty much invented Bumpy Johnson. She paid him, she created his ability to become who he was. And she is just kind of forgotten. And I think that's because she's a woman, honestly. And it's it's really sad to see that because she did just as much, if not more, than Bumpy Johnson. And she should be remembered just as much as he is. Bumpy Johnson had a lot of movies written about him. He was one of the most well-known gangsters to ever exist in New York. There's a 
recent epic series called The Godfather of Harlem, and there was a movie written a while ago called Hoodlum. There's a whole bunch of movies and TV shows and everything. And that's all thanks to St. Clair. Thanks to St. Clair's employment, Bumpy Johnson went on to dominate Harlem's gambling scene and became one of the most philanthropic mobsters of the 20th century. In New York, gambling was declared illegal in 1908. However, decades earlier, in the middle of the 1830s, so like a long time ago, a constitutional ban on lotteries had been put in place. Because of that, there was untold numbers of underground lotteries, especially in underprivileged African-American neighborhoods like Harlem. The numbers racket, which was also known as the numbers game or mafia lottery, operated in a similar way to the Hispanic lottery Bolita, but it was geared specifically towards the African-American community. Her underground racket was very similar to the stock market, which African-Americans were, again, not allowed to partake in. She also ran a lottery where runners would go and collect payments from people that wanted to play. They would give their numbers, usually a three-digit number, and the winning numbers would be decided based on, like, different things. Sometimes it was horse races, sometimes it was numbers in the stock market, and if somebody won, they won the prize that was set for that particular round. It's very similar to the lottery that we have today. As of then, the numbers racket was a very small-scale lottery, and it was on a neighborhood-by-neighborhood basis. In the eyes of the law, St. Clair's numbers racket was an illegal crime ring that preyed on Harlem's poorest citizens, whereas in actual fact, it had a lot of benefits for the community. St. Clair employed dozens of black men and women as numbers runners and subsidized the low incomes that they received as a result of their exclusion from traditionally white jobs. At the time, even in the North, there was still a lot of racism. The fact that Jim Crow laws were still going on in the South will tell you that. So she was making opportunity available to a wide range of people that never would have had these kind of opportunities available to them. They never were going to have the ability to make the amount of money that she was paying them. A lot of them may not have even had employment at all. On top of that, she used the profits that she got in a really good way. The profits that she got from her racket allowed her to support legitimate businesses in the area, and she would publish newspaper ads that would help educate black Harlemites on their legal and voting rights. And that's never a good thing in the eyes of the police. Harlem's police do not see her as somebody that's building up the community. Regardless of what police thought, she was well known for placing advertisements in local newspapers that would inform Harlem's community of their legal rights. She would advocate for them to go out and vote for politicians that had them in mind. And she was regularly condemning police brutality against the black community. She was a very, very strong activist for her community. Somebody that was always at the forefront of any fight for equal pay, equal treatment, equal everything. She was a civil rights leader. And she tried. 
She tried to go about it the right way. She would go to the local authorities and complain several times about police harassment, brutal treatments, stop and frisk kind of stuff, and they didn't listen. They just ignored her. So when they ignored her, she decided to start running ads in the Harlem newspaper. She ran ads in Harlem newspapers that would accuse senior police officers of corruption. And that's a very risky move, to be calling out police in the neighborhood that you live in. The cops responded by arresting her on fabricated charges. Despite her having several officers working for her and on her payroll, St. Clair was arrested in December of 1929 for having policy slips. And even that didn't stop her. She went and did a press conference on January 1st, 1930, just two days after her arrest. She said, I have been arrested and framed by three of the bravest and noblest cowards who wear civilian clothes. St. Clair was sentenced in March of 1930 to eight months in prison. So she gets released in December of that same year, and as soon as she walks out of jail, she wants revenge. She is pissed. She's like, okay, I have all these cops, and I've been paying them, I've been doing everything right, and they still roll over and allow me to get arrested and go to jail for eight months. So now she is out for revenge. They didn't do their job. They were getting paid to make sure she doesn't go to jail. She went to jail. So what does she decide to do? She decides that in order to get paid, back, she is going to go and testify at the Hofstadter Committee about kickbacks that she had been paying police officers and pretty much telling all about any police that had been accepting payments and everything that they had done in service of her. Because she's like, well, I sat there and I paid all this money and they still allowed me to get arrested. I still went to jail. So what was the point? Why not go say something? Why not allow them to go to jail? The Hofstadter Committee, or as the trials were known, the Seabury Investigations, was an investigation into the corrupt police officers of the NYPD. The commission subsequently fired more than a dozen officers based on St. Clair's testimony alone. So the moral of the story is, no, it wasn't a good idea to mess with her. During the 1930s, Queenie and Bumpy were able to build an empire, ended up dominating the entire Harlem gambling scene with their thriving numbers racket. After Prohibition ended, Jewish and Italian-American crime families saw a pretty big drop in profits because that was their main way of earning a living was to sell illegal alcohol. But now that prohibition was over, alcohol wasn't illegal anymore, and they really didn't know what to do to subsidize the rest of their income. They decided to go into the Harlem gambling scene and start getting into the numbers game themselves. I feel like I've said this on every episode that I've ever made, but I'll say it again. Prohibition created the mafia. Prohibition came out in 1919, known as the Volstead Act, in order to reduce crime in America by getting rid of alcohol, but in reality, what it did was trigger a massive wave of organized crime. It was during the Prohibition era that Arthur Fledgenheimer, popularly known as Dutch Schultz, was released from prison. He was released on December 8th, 1920. He was arrested at 17 years old after he was caught breaking into an apartment. He was sentenced to 17 months in prison, which was his first and only time behind bars. 
During this prison stay, he was such an unruly prisoner that the prison that he was at was like, bro, we can't take this. Get rid of him. Get him out of our prison. And he was taken out of that prison and put into a work farm in West Hampton, Long Island. He actually escaped this work farm and he was recaptured. And the only thing that came from that escape was another two months added onto his sentence. I feel like now if you escape prison, you just go to jail for life. Like you could be in jail for robbing a 7-Eleven. And if you escape I feel like you're going to jail for the rest of your life now. So as soon as he gets out of jail in 1920, he starts to go into bootlegging, obviously. Everybody's in bootlegging in 1920. He started transporting liquor and beer from Canada across the border. Schultz worked as a bootlegger for years, not only transporting, but also producing his own beer. Schultz had a very widely known reputation for violence and brutality. It was this violent reputation of Schultz's that later caught the attention of Joey No, the owner of a Bronx speakeasy called the Hub Social Club. No initially hired Schultz with the intention that Schultz would become his security. But in the long run, he ended up making him a partner of the club. Together, they established a large number of illegal bars and breweries throughout Manhattan, and that would include ones in Yorkville, Washington Heights, and Harlem. After the two started using intimidation as a sales strategy and compelling rival club owners to buy their beer instead of competition, their bootlegging business took off. They almost had a monopoly because they would go and say like, hey, you're going to buy alcohol from us. And the person would be like, uh, no, I get it at a better price elsewhere. And they'd be like, oh, okay, cool. I'm going to blow your bar up. It was serious shit. When things that Schultz had done started to go around town and his reputation started to get stronger, people kind of knew that they had to buy from him if he ever approached them. A particular story started to go around of something that he had done, and after that story got around, people were like, oh shit, like, okay, if he comes up to me, I'm, I'm, okay, I got it, I'll do it. The story goes that Schultz was working with John and Joe Rock. Initially, the brothers didn't want to work with him. And eventually John got on board and Joe didn't. So in order to get Joe on board, they kidnapped Joe. They beat the absolute brakes off of this boy. And then they hung him by the thumbs from a meat hook. Then they took this bandage that had been wrapped around somebody with gonorrhea and they smeared it all over his face. Joe's family ended up paying $35,000 for his release, and when he got back home, he went blind. They did work with him in the future, and anybody else that Schultz wanted to work with that heard this story worked with him as well. In 1928, No was shot and killed, and that left Schultz in charge of the business on his own. And this business had already been established, and it was making a lot of money. Fast forward to 1933, now Prohibition has come to an end, and that results in a huge loss of income for Schultz. His solution was to go into the Harlem numbers racket, but he decided that he was going to go into the numbers racket in an area that St. Clair was already operating. She already had a stronghold over Harlem's underground gambling scene. Dutch Schultz became the first mobster ever to move into Harlem, and he would end up beating and killing multiple operators who refused to pay him for protection. So he didn't tell other numbers runners and other numbers people that they couldn't be in that industry, but 
but he did tell them, like, you're gonna pay me for protection, or I'm gonna beat you, or I'm gonna kill you. Schultz had already proved that he was not afraid of stepping on other mobsters' toes, and he started to use brute force to overthrow Harlem's pre-existing rackets because he wanted to take them over. Without a doubt, Arthur Dutch Schultz Flegenheimer posed the greatest threat to both Stephanie St. Clair and the entire Harlem gambling industry. He used extreme violence against his competitors. He forced them to hand over a portion of their revenue, or he would shut them down entirely. Gradually became one of the most formidable policy bankers in Harlem. As of that time, numbers rackets were predominantly owned by African Americans because it was predominantly played in African American neighborhoods. As a result, when Schultz started to use violence to take over this whole industry, policy bankers like Stephanie St. Clair interpreted this as a racially motivated attack, and it very well may have been. Schultz gave his competitors three choices. Surrender their business to him, continue to run it on their own and hand over a share of their profits, or face brutal consequences of not choosing either of the former options. Despite the violence and intimidation, St. Clair and her chief enforcer, Bumpy Johnson, refused to pay Schultz for protection. They were like, absolutely not. Like, get the hell out of here. While Schultz was using violence to force any rival club owners to buy his beer, he didn't really encounter a lot of opposition. When he encountered Stephanie St. Clair and she pushed back, it was unlike anything that Schultz had encountered. Like, ever since he hung that dude up by his thumbs, nobody said no to Schultz. So he was kind of like, whoa, what the fuck? Like, people aren't supposed to say no to me. I'm scary. Instead of backing down, St. Clair decided that she was going to fight fire with fire. And she launched counterattacks against Schultz and started going after his own rackets and his storefronts. Over 40 people died as a result of Schultz's unyielding quest for complete control over the numbers racket. Schultz was also dealing with some legal drama at the time. Schultz was charged with tax evasion in 1933, and when the trial was relocated to a small town in upstate New York, he kind of was forced to relocate with it. In an attempt to win over the public, Schultz hired a public relations firm to kind of smooth over his gangster image and started getting involved in philanthropy. He donated hundreds of thousands of dollars to charity, and all of this was just to kind of make people not hate him because he was widely known as being this, like, vicious thug that nobody wanted anything to do with, and he didn't want that kind of reputation. With the amount of money that he was donated and this public relations firm hard at work, it did work. A lot of people started to see him as a businessman and gained respect for him instead of just fear, but it did leave a significant dent in his bank account. By the time Schultz finished the trial and returned back to Harlem, he was pretty desperate to gain back control of the gambling scene in Harlem, and his bank account was low. He needed to make money back that he had lost to the public relations firm and that he had lost while he was laying low during the trial. But he faced two major roadblocks. He was still dealing with Stephanie St. Clair, and now he was dealing with prosecutor Thomas Dewey. 
Prosecutor Dewey had been hired by New York Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia to investigate Schultz and bring him down for good. Like, LaGuardia was no joke. I talk a lot about him in other episodes. I think I talked most about him in the Frank Costello video. But this guy, he went after anybody that was in organized crime, and he went after them hard. You also may recognize the name Thomas Dewey if you watch a lot of my videos. I talked a lot about him in the Lucky Luciano video. Dewey is the one that was ultimately responsible for taking Luciano down and having him put in jail for 30 to 50 years. He didn't end up serving that amount of time. It didn't take him down. That was like the middle of his story, but he was given 30 to 50 years in prison. I'm not going to go through the whole story here. Go check out my Lucky Luciano video if you want to see how he got out of a 30 to 50 year jail sentence by helping America win World War II, but we're not going to go through that here. Meanwhile, Sinclair remained very defiant in the face of Schultz's threats. She was not backing down. She was his top target because she was a powerful black racketeer and a woman. We all know her to be somebody that was going to stand up for what she felt was right. And she would go to great lengths to make sure that her voice was always being heard. She was one of, like, if not the only person that ever stood up to him. Like, he was not used to hearing no. And this woman was just like, absolutely not. I'm not paying you. I'm not lessening my business. Like, I'm doing nothing for you. Get out of my face. And he was just not used to that. The numbers queen had absolutely no intention of going down without a fight. And she exerted every effort to prevent Schultz and his gang from breaking into her network. She made a point of emphasizing how Schultz's actions were strongly racially motivated, and she would talk to anybody that would listen about that. And that had a huge impact on his ability to operate in Harlem. She urged her peers to stop going to establishments that weren't owned by people of color, both legal and illegal. So pretty much she went around to her entire network and was like, listen, if there's a white person that owns that restaurant, that owns that gambling ring, whatever, don't go there. Go to places that are owned by people of color. Like, there's no reason that you should be doing a lottery with Dutch Schultz. You should be coming to me. Like, I'm one of you. There was nothing that was going to make St. Clair hand over her numbers empire. In 1935, Dutch Schultz ordered a hit on St. Clair and that ended up forcing her into hiding. She handed her business over to her chief bodyguard and number two in her organization, Bumpy Johnson, and she went underground for her own protection because she was not about to be out here fending off people trying to collect a bounty. I don't know what the bounty was, but like, it doesn't matter. It could have been one dollar. If somebody wants to collect that one dollar, her life is not worth it. By 1935, the FBI had designated Schultz public enemy number one. Now, while Schultz has a hit out on St. Clair, he also decides that he wants to take out a hit on Thomas Dewey. Schultz scheduled a meeting with the head of the Mafia's five families, Charles Lucky Luciano. Schultz went to Luciano and pretty much told him like, hey, I want to take out Dewey. This man is on my ass. He's trying to take me down and I don't want him alive anymore. I'm going to take him out. And Lucky Luciano absolutely forbade it. Luciano pretty much says like the publicity that that will get is 
astronomical. Such a public act of aggression is gonna have a whole lot of people hating us. It's gonna attract so much negative attention to the underground gambling scene. And not only that, but it's gonna attract a lot of attention to the mafia as a whole. We don't want the police coming for the mafia for personal reasons. It'll only cause unnecessary attention and it will throw the entire city into chaos. Because yeah, the police want to take the mafia out, they don't like criminals, blah blah blah, but if they start feeling like their lives are in danger, if they see Thomas Dewey, somebody that's going after the mafia, lose his life, and they have to sit there and question whether they may die over this, they're gonna start coming for blood. They're gonna do everything they can to put every mafia member in jail. Right now, they want to put them in jail, like if they catch them doing something, they're gonna do something about it, but when somebody loses their life, they'll start planting drugs. They'll start doing shit that is gonna get you off the street, period. So Luciano's like, absolutely not. You're insane. Don't even think about it. Do not go near Dewey. Fun fact, Albert Anastasia also requested permission to take out Thomas Dewey, and Luciano literally protected this man's life above all. Like, he would not let anybody take Dewey out, and everybody wanted to. Schultz made the decision to move forward with his plan. He decided, like, fuck Luciano. I don't know what else to do. This man's gonna take me down. Like, I'm gonna go to jail for the rest of my life. This guy's coming at me. I don't know what else to do. Dutch Schultz was an influential and very powerful figure, but you don't mess with the mafia. Do not get on the wrong side of the mafia, especially Lucky Luciano himself. Like, are you crazy? It doesn't matter how powerful you are. It doesn't matter. Nothing matters. Like, you get on the wrong side of the mafia, especially in a case that could take the entire mafia down, everything that these people had spent their entire lives building. It's not gonna turn out good for you, bro. Regardless of how powerful you are, the moment the mafia no longer supports you or wants you dead, you're as good as dead. Fortunately for St. Clair, her days in exile are about to be over. The moment that Schultz disobeyed Lucky and decided to go ahead with his plan of killing Dewey, he is no longer a homie. While Schultz continued to plan his assassination of Dewey, Lucky decided to devise his own strategy. Dutch Schultz, his accountant, and two of his bodyguards were dining at the Palace Chop House in Newark, New Jersey on October 23rd, 1935. Two gunmen from Murder, Inc. slipped past security while Schultz was in the restroom. The men opened fire on Schultz and his posse and hit and killed every single one of them. Schultz actually survived the shooting, and he stayed alive for almost 30 hours. He eventually passed away in his hospital bed from the wounds that he got. While he laid in the hospital dying, St. Clair sent him a telegram that said, Don't be yellow. As ye sow, so shall ye reap. This was kind of like a wake-up call for St. Clair, and she decided that she wanted to stay on the legal side of things from now on. She handed over control of her numbers empire to Bumpy Johnson, and pretty much withdrew from the gambling industry altogether. Stephanie Sinclair had always been a fervent advocate for civil rights. She was a leader in the activist community and did all she could for not only people in her own community, but she was an outspoken supporter of immigrants, of anything that she viewed as like an underdog. She would have no problem getting out and going in the newspapers and doing whatever she could to bring attention to the issue. In 1936, she met her husband, Sufi Abdul Hamid, an outspoken activist who would regularly picket white-owned businesses in order to convince them to hire African Americans. 
Hamid was the head of an Islamic Buddhist sect, and he was also a militant activist. The relationship between St. Clair and Hamid quickly crumbled after he was accused of having an affair with Fu Futum, a black fortune teller. Hamid ended up blowing a large portion of St. Clair's fortune and cheated on her with this young fortune teller. In the beginning of their relationship, St. Clair and Hamid had signed a contract that bound them together for 90 years. And pretty much what this contract did was it bound all of St. Clair's finances and riches to him, so he had access to it forever, and it took $10,000 of his own money and put it aside for her. He would regularly approach her with, like, wackadoodle things that he wanted to do. Like, he approached her and asked her if she would finance a movie that he wanted to make. And when she said no, he would just throw a hissy fit and spend weeks badgering and harassing her until she would be like, fine, just take the freaking money and leave me alone. After she found out about this affair that he was having with this fortune teller, she shot him during a fight that they were having on January 18th, 1938. Despite the fact that she didn't kill him, he lived. She was sentenced to up to 10 years at the Bedford Hills Correctional Facility for Women in New York. In April of 1938, Fatum, whose real name was Dorothy Matthews, and Hamid got married. They later established a Buddhist temple together. St. Clair was released from prison in the early 1940s. Stephanie St. Clair's life after she was released from prison is largely unknown. It was believed that she lived a secluded life after her release from prison. She wanted nothing to do with the public. She stopped running newspaper ads. She stopped getting involved in any criminal enterprises. She had money and she just wanted had nothing to do with anybody or anything. She didn't appear in print again until a 1960 New York Post article. Mame Hatcher, Bumpy Johnson's wife, claimed that she retired to a Long Island mansion. She went from being an illegal numbers racketeer to a legitimate successful businesswoman, which is like one of the most impressive things that you'll ever see a girl from Martinique, West Indies end up doing. This woman is like absolutely amazing. I don't love her choice of men not gonna lie, didn't like that dude, but neither did she, and that's why she shot him, so. When she came back into the spotlight and in the 1960s started to go into the newspapers, she would continue to publish columns about racism, police brutality, unauthorized search and seizure raids, and other problems that affected the black community in a neighborhood newspaper. Shortly before turning 73, St. Clair passed away sometime in 1969, peaceful and wealthy. One year earlier, Bumpy Johnson, who had returned to live with her to write poetry, had passed away. No newspaper reported on her death, and to this day, the exact date of her death is kind of unknown. The legacy that St. Clair left behind was astronomical. Almost her entire criminal career was spent at 409 Edgecombe Avenue, an apartment complex that was populated by Harlem's black elite. Civil rights activists like W.E.B. Du Bois, painters like Aaron Douglas, and playwrights like Catherine Butler Jones were among her neighbors who were at the forefront of the civil rights movement. Rather than fleeing from the law like a lot of other mafia members and criminals of that time, Stephanie St. Clair chose to step into the spotlight and use her reputation and her wealth and her reach to better the lives of her and her fellow Harlemites. 
St. Clair battled corruption from men both above and below the law, and looked absolutely fabulous doing it, with no fear of the dangerous repercussions that her activism could have. Her refusal to yield to public enemy number one, Delt Schultz, saved not only her racket, but also saved the rackets of other black racketeers who were subject to his violent quest for dominance. While keeping her racket afloat obviously increased her personal wealth, it also created countless jobs for black men and women and allowed a lot of black men and women to invest in legitimate black owned businesses. She pretty much created a stock market for the black community that the actual stock market had shunned and not allowed in to build their own wealth. Meanwhile, she faced off against the NYPD and triumphed, which is not something that a lot of people can say. In addition to testifying against corrupt police officers, her regular advertisements in the Amsterdam News, a assisted in educating her peers about legal and voting rights. Rather than engaging in destructive behavior like her male mobster counterparts, St. Clair spent her life attempting to uplift and support her fellow Harlemites. With violence only serving as a means to an end, it wasn't what she chose to do, and it was actually pretty rare. That's all I have on the wonderful woman, Stephanie St. Clair. Thanks so much for watching. Join me next week as I delve into the lives and legacies of some of the most fascinating and infamous gangsters in history. Please don't forget to like, share, subscribe, follow, comment, do all the things, and I'll see you next week. Bye!